Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Alexis Kirk. He's a senior research fellow, uh, part of the School of Humanities and Performing Arts uh, at University of Plymouth in England. And we're going to talk about AI and filmmaking and how the two are uh, intersecting. So, Alexis, thanks for coming. My pleasure, Richard. How long have you been looking at and considering and possibly using AI? Is it a new thing for you or you know, how did you get first get involved in it? Well, it's always it's always been my thing, really. Um, many years ago, um, I've, I've actually done two PhDs. And my first PhD was in it kind of in the genesis of neural networks. It was back in the old days before deep learning. Um, but it was still very much artificial intelligence and AI. Um, and then I, I've, I've kind of kept my hand in with it over the years, doing more of it and less of it. Um, but I, I've, I've always, I've come back to it again and again. And uh, obviously I've had a lot of my work with film has involved artificial intelligence. So, I mean, how is AI being used in films right now? Whether people know or not, I'm sure it's you know being used in ways they do know and don't know, but like when you look at films that have recently come out, well, I guess nothing this year, but probably last year. Um, what is, what roles is AI taking? What's it doing? Well, it's kind of the, the the whole phrase AI could have a number of meanings. You see, to to me, for example, I think uh, the the ever present visual effects industry is utilizing great kind of natural computer intelligence to do what it does. You know these. Um, these rendering uh, tools enable things such as uh, the Marvel movies, these franchises. Uh, I mean, they're all based on some very powerful modeling tools uh, of the natural world and of how objects interact. And they have a great deal of what I would think of as a physical intelligence, you know, intelligent physical modeling and so forth. So I, I think one of the biggest ways in which um, intelligent computing has infected movies, if you like, has been through visual effects. I've seen, I guess, the hybrid appearance of people, you know, like in Star Wars, um, some of the original actors that are no longer around, you know, they used, uh, I guess, computer imagery to you know, project their face onto a body and it kind of looked like them. I'm sure it's going to get better with time. And then there's these, um, I don't know, like these hybrid movies now where they're not quite cartoon. They're not, um, you know, real actors, but the real actors make the movements and it's kind of like a, I guess, for lack of a better word, a cartoon that, that displays them, but they're not actually like a, a flesh and blood person. And then like the, the interface between the two is, is uh, becoming more prevalent. Well, you're, you're touching on, I think what you've touched on there is that we don't really know what we mean when we say artificial intelligence. We have these kind of images of it and cliches of it. But the truth is, is our interaction with intelligent humans, it's not all about logic circuits in the brain. Of when we process data when talking to another human being, we're taking in all of their emotional movements in their face. So in a sense, what happens at the end of um, 
the movie where Princess Leia comes back to life in not not in you know not where she comes back in from space, but where she's actually recreated. Um, you know that is a contribution to artificial intelligence because that it's really. I think we sometimes do confuse our old electronic circuits with the the really very flesh and blood humanistic way that we ourselves compute and interact as beings. Yeah, maybe AI instead of artificial intelligence, it really should be augmented intelligence because that's what that's what its role seems to be: is it augments uh, human ability and human interaction in different ways. Definitely, and I I, I think. Um, you know, uh, researchers are recognizing this very much. And well, one of the things that I heard about in the last few years was obviously IBM's Deep Blue beat that, beat uh, the Grand Master Kasparov many years ago now. But what people like Kasparov are now doing is they're trying to learn new ways of playing chess where they collaborate with machines and it raises chess to a whole new level. And I think it, it's, it's, um, really that there is a future because there are so many areas where machines can't quite cut it i mean the, they can't really walk you know one of the most basic things that if you like able-bodied people take for granted is, is just being able to walk machines don't have the physical intelligence to walk they don't have the physical intelligence to hold uh, a conversation i mean i wouldn't suggest we do this but you and i could probably multitask right now you know, if you really wanted to, you could um, look at your phone and start browsing your emails. Uh, I could um, call my dog in and start patting my dog and stroking my dog. And we could still continue a coherent conversation. A machine can't really converse properly, even when it puts all of its powers into doing that. So there's, there's a lot that these things can't quite do they're nearly there but they can't quite do it so of course the natural thing is how can we collaborate to make them more powerful and us more powerful at the same time well yeah they're also idiot savants you know so a computer that can uh, i don't know beat me in chess if i ask it to do the dishes it, it won't even begin because it just has zero ability to do anything in that regard so i guess you know i don't know the industry i'm not in it but i just see them as um, in order to get any successful ai beyond like the, the most narrowest application, you would need to string together a whole bunch of different AIs and kind of piece them together to to accomplish something. But even then it requires like orchestration by a person. There's just these, um, you know, there's ability within an AI, but it's it's it just seems to be incredibly narrow and it still needs a person who's, um, I guess, can integrate all these uh, these different abilities. Yeah, 100%. It's uh, the, there is this, been around for a few years now, it's the idea of generalized AI. I think people have recognized the difference between sort of task-specific artificial intelligence and this more generalized idea. But the thing is, I, I don't think we really understand what human intelligence is. You know, we, we, don't, we don't fully understand our own brains. We don't understand our own psychology. Um, I think that the advent of computers, which, gosh, so many decades ago now, it's given us this way of thinking about information processing that may have absolutely nothing to do with the roots of human intelligence. It may just be one useful model of information processing that we've applied in many different ways. But you know, human intelligence is related to our emotions. It's related to, to our social interactions. It, it, it's, um, it's not an abstract machine. So in the movies... Uh... You know, in a film, where is AI being used most commonly that you see? And where do you like to use it? What are you experimenting with? 
Well, my I think the area that uh, the two areas I guess that I find most exciting both relate to story, and it's it's one of the biggest challenges uh, is is coming up with good stories um, and also giving machines control of story. Now, in one sense, this is a ridiculous idea because talking talk about generalized AI story is one of the most human things possible it's where the reason we can lose ourselves in a movie is because in essence movies tell tell our lives you know what's the classic thing they teach you in screenwriting lectures is like a person meets an obstacle they overcome the obstacle and they change well that's that's pretty much a description of someone living their life having a midlife crisis kind of dealing with the whole issue of life and then going on and you know dying as such the it, it, story is the most human thing and um, for stories to come alive for us we have to really believe in the humanity of the characters in those stories so you may think well how on earth can ai contribute to this but then there's something also very suggestive going on at the moment which is i mean in I, i've been involved in algorithmic composition and music is slowly being broken down by machines into smaller and smaller parts. So, for example, there was a time, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember the albums and, and you know, albums in a form where all the tracks were fixed together and you had to buy the album to get the tracks that were on it. And then that got broken down first by Napster and then all the things that came out of it and currently things like Spotify, where the albums are broken down into tracks now, there have been for many years, there have been music services that if you want to make a, a corporate video or just use music for some small scale TV program, you can buy the, the bits that make up a piece of background music and you can put them together in the way you want. So what's happened is that music technology has broken things down from kind of these albums into the very slices, the jigsaw pieces of music. And... This is the way that researchers are moving with, for example, with television and film. You know, we had the situation where to, if you wanted to watch a TV show, you had to watch a whole channel, a network channel, and you had to right. wait. You had to wait until the thing you wanted came on. And then now it's got to the situation with streamers where you don't have to do that. They've broken that channel down into the programs. And there is research at, for example, the BBC, where they're breaking down the programs into the objects that make up that program. So the visual elements, the different soundtrack elements, the different audio elements. And they are, they're, they're developing technology to allow those elements to be put back together with user preferences once it reaches the television or the laptop. What do, what so, do you mean? What's an example of that? Well, an example um, that uh, recently I spoke at a BBC event, actually, and one of the other researchers there had developed a system. Um, and th th there's a big one of the big British uh, network shows is called Casualty. Uh, actually, it's Holby City, I think. I, I can't. It's one of the big medical shows in the UK and um, very, very big audience, very mainstream. And one of the one of the issues that. Um, tended to come up for people that have hearing difficulties is you could kind of how do you how do you adapt a tv program for people with hearing difficulties it's not as simple as it sounds you might think well i just turned down the music the soundtrack 
so that somebody with, uh, with a hearing difficulty can just focus on the dialogue. But the truth is, there are different times when non-dialogue story is very important to the plot. There are times when all you want to do is manipulate the emotions during a story. There are times when the background sound is very important. For example, the sound of a heart rate monitor getting faster, cutting out. You don't want to lower that sound. So what they did is they, they broke down all of the sound objects within an episode of this very popular TV series, and they gave them a narrative importance so that then somebody who wanted to kind of turn down as much of the sound as possible would be able to have an intelligent volume control that as you lowered the volume control actually got rid of sounds in inverse proportion to their story importance. So it wouldn't just immediately get rid of all sounds except dialogue. If the music was important, it would keep the music high. If the heart rate monitor was important, it would keep that high. To do this, you can't have someone doing that at Broadcasting House. You know, that needs to be done on somebody's television or on someone's laptop in their home. So those objects, those sound objects, those video objects need to be, the program needs to be broken down um, rather than sent well, as a monolithic object in broadcast. Yeah, I imagine someone walking, you know, along like a desolate road and maybe the crunching of the leaves is important, you know, the wind, the clack of their footsteps, that kind of thing, they're breathing. And then when they encounter something now, other sounds are more important, you know, if you're, so yeah, it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah, but the key point about that, it can, you know, you can't have somebody at the broadcast central, if you like, or you can't have somebody in, in Netflix's servers pr producing 500 different versions of every program that is specialized to each person. What you have to do is send out one version that is a packet of objects. And then once it's reached the person's laptop, iPhone, or TV, it is then adjusted there. So the point is, is that these story objects we used to receive in one block, you know, there is very serious consideration and the future is they're going to be broken down. And if we can break down the audio objects, we can break down the scenes. And if we can break down the scenes, you know, we can rearrange the scenes. We can do a Bandersnatch, but not just for Bandersnatch, potentially for every single TV program sent over the internet. What about... Uh alternate endings i know that's been tried a few times um is that something that there's a, a demand for or let's say um there's certain characters in the show that people like um you know what about script writers writing or, or assessing you know which characters are the most popular and then they'll know which ones maybe to spin off into their own series if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes people have made a great deal of money out of releasing two versions and multiple versions of Blu-rays and of their film, multiple cuts of their films. You know, as, as the current philosophy is you, you create a cut with a certain ending and that's released. And of course, that's very much, that's as a result. I guess that, that you want to have the control to a degree, but it's also as a result of how we used to distribute films. And we used to distribute films on these, on these kind of reels of film that couldn't be very easily adjusted. So the whole art form is tied back to this idea of this 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 way what literally was film and and couldn't be simply adjusted and that has all changed now and the the big debate the big question is how do we utilize that and i mean we we have the technology 
to have alternate endings. And I mean, I did a film back in 2011, which um, had, was it 2013, which had, uh, it was called Many Worlds, and it had four possible endings. And these endings were selected by four of the audience members, not, not consciously. They, it wasn't like Bandersnatch where you press a button. It was that they wore kind of heart rate monitor, um, brainwave monitor, and these various sensors. And based on the level of stress that was detected, the computer would automatically change the ending to kind of increase stress or lower stress. So we've had the technology to do it. I personally would say it was a, it was a very much proof of concept. It wasn't necessarily a huge artistic success. Um, and it's been tried a, a, it's been tried a number of times. I, I think the big challenge is not the technology. The big challenge is it goes back to this thing. If you can crack storytelling, you've really cracked general AI because if you can tell truthful stories with truthful characters using a machine, then your machines pretty much understand humans at that point. You've got you know, what we already have with visual effects, which is incredibly powerful modeling of the physical world, if you can actually have a machine that can do incredibly powerful modeling of the human mind and emotions, then you have the, the stories, then you have the power to change story. But I guess the question is, and what, what fascinates me, how far can we take it? You know, how far can we use our knowledge of story? We know, we know so much about structure. I mean, TV, for example, is immense tv writing is all about structure tv writing is immensely collaborative i mean in um i know in in the us for you, you have writers rooms we're getting that more and more in the uk now for our tv and structure is everything and i was actually talking to my girlfriend recently one of her favorite shows is the crown and it is a it's a great show it's great british export we were talking about is that really is this what really happens with the the british royal family did these things really happen and I was kind of saying to her, well, there's to actually have a TV program of, I'm not sure, I think the crown's 45 minutes long uh, per episode. You have to have a turning point. I mean, every, every five to 10 minutes, what's called a turning point. Uh, you have to have something sign emotionally significant happen. It has to kind of be unexpected and yet entirely natural. And it has to spin off the story of the characters involved into a pretty much a new direction every five to 10 minutes. Now I'm fairly sure the British royal family did not have a significant turning point <laughs> that fitted in nicely right, with the structure. But, but this is, and this is how I know it's, it's a highly fictionalized account because television structure, is so tight and so important on that mm. tiny screen. You have to have character structure. So my question that I ask myself is, is, you know, how much can we use that? How much can we use the implicit intelligence of systems like these amazing deep learning networks? I mean, that, that it's unbelievable. When I started doing neural networks, it was like, I mean, you had three layers of neurons in them and you were quite impressed with yourself. These new systems using some of the APIs like Google's um, TensorFlow API, they've got like dozens, dozens of layers of neurons. Right. Um, and the training can take days, weeks. The intelligence, the kind of pattern, I mean, you call it intelligence, it's, it's sort of a pattern recognition of mathematical modeling. But how far can we take that when combined with the tightly structured nature of much of television and to a degree film? 
and kind of bypass and short circuit the need to fully understand humans to actually create story. Again, how is this going to manifest in the shows that we watch? What do you think is what do you think it's going to look like? One of the one of the simplest things, um, which it sounds boring, but in fact, I think it would be immensely popular, is you can choose whether your show is 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, or 10 minutes long. How on earth do you take the same story roughly and compress it? That, I think, will be one of the first things. I know the BBC have done experiments uh, with a, a documentary um, about a, um, a British person who turned out to be a spy, not the famous one, but another one. And they did a documentary, and you could adjust the length of it, and it still made narrative sense, because generally programmes are fixed in, in length in such a way that the writer and the producer really fine-tuned it. So one of the first well, ways... That's cool. That's, that's like my wife uh, watching Dancing with the Stars and fast forwarding through the commentary and just watching the dances you know that's the part she cares about see that's brilliant because you that's such a good you know so yeah you can select the, whether you want the show with the commentary just the dances what what elements you want to emphasize or you can select which you know oh that's my favorite judge so if she goes off on a rant i want to make sure i see that bit and so forth these are things that we we have the technology to do, but it's trying to work out how to mass deliver it in a way. I, I don't know how you you must be fairly technically proficient to to use this sort of podcasting software and stuff. I mean, I don't know your background actually, Richard. You have to forgive me, but I'm sorry. You're pretty. There's there's different ways you can use it, by the way. So some can be really easy, some can be complicated. So. Don't let it fool you. Sometimes it's very simple to use. You know. But, but you know, I suspect we may well be more technically proficient. So if a bunch of kind of technical options comes up on the TV screen, it may not bowl us over. But for the average viewer, they don't want that. You know, it needs to be more curated. Um, so well, when you were talking about a show and having it appear at different lengths, all of a sudden I started thinking about the commercials. And if there's a 30-minute show, and there's X number of commercials, and I choose the 10-minute version, uh, will it still force me to hear a whole bunch of commercials? And now I perceive, like, man, this show is just all commercial. I don't want to watch this crap. You know, because even though I, I chose 10 minutes, it would just be lousy with commercials, you know, because they got to get a certain amount in to monetize it. Unless I pay for this shortened version, maybe that, you know, that does it. But that's what came to mind when you mentioned it. Well, that's, that's a very good point. I hadn't actually considered that. There'd have to be, you couldn't have, if you had a 10 minute show, you couldn't have 10 minutes of commercials. They'd need to be some kind of compromise uh, organized um, for that to work. But I, th I, I think one of the other areas that's sort of unfortunately has ethical issues is, and it, I was experimenting when I did my film back in 2013, it was analyzing viewers' reactions without them knowing. Of course, they did know because I'd, I was attached these senses to them. But in a sense, if they were immersed in the film, they didn't know when the cuts were happening and why. Um, now, there, there have, I mean, my laptop, for example, has a, has a webcam on top. Now, suppose I'm watching something on, um, you know, on Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever. And it notices that this particular thing, I'm I'm looking to my phone a lot and looking on my phone and I'm not so interested or I'm chatting to somebody sitting beside me or my eyes are wandering. It learns something about what parts of TV programs I like and what types of TV programs I like. Suppose that 
uh, it notices I'm, I'm watching a particular part or type of TV program absolutely intently. I, I mean, there's, there's really good facial recognition and eye gaze recognition being developed at the moment. And there's the potential there. If your center program is a bunch of objects that can be remixed and, and, and moved around, you could start running experiments with people in the nicest possible way. In a little way like Facebook ran those experiments of emotional manipulation, you could try and learn the sort of emotional arc that people want in a program. You could, if they were watching a program and they, they just seemed inattentive or they weren't emotionally reactive, you could move one of the more emotional bits to the point where they're, they're getting bored. I mean, obviously there are creative issues with how you do this, but the, mm. the potential is there. Hmm. I guess you could wake them up if they're, uh, if they're becoming inattentive and put something in there that, you know, you have a reserve of, uh, of story elements that you could drop in there, depending on, you know, if a person wants something to be like a, like a horror movie, you could have it where it's like incredibly scary, somewhat scary, more of a thriller. I guess you could tailor different types of movies and genres to help people want, you know, do you want something to be like a complete tearjerker? Or something just kind of a little bit sad, and you can like you're, you're talking about doing it without the the, the watcher knowing. Uh, um, let me, but if they knew, it might be different. You know? Yeah, well, not without them knowing, but without them being forced to uh, to consciously make choices. You know, this is something that I, I I wrote an article about this that kind of some people agree with, some disagreed with. And just to get conversation going, I said, this is why interactive film will never happen. It was kind of the title of the article. It was something like that. Because when I, you know, when I watch TV, most of the time, I just want to be utterly compelled to watch and to keep watching. You know, if I have to pause it for a comfort break or to go and get a glass of water, I want to not want to pause it. I want to only pause it by necessity. So the last thing I want to do is every 10 minutes or at certain decision points have to use my remote control or phone or mouse pad to tell it what I want next and what I feel like next. I, I mm. And this is where I think the power, you, you know, you can make people aware you're doing it in the sense of say, this is an adaptive TV program. It will change depending on how it picks up your responses, but you don't have to bloody do it when they're watching it. You know, and, and I think that's a key thing. And, I, and, I, and I, th I think a lot of people have maybe, Bandersnatch maybe hasn't, I mean, I think Bandersnatch is a great achievement technically and artistically. But one of the ways they made it work was they made it super meta. It was so meta. It was a film about itself and about Netflix. And sorry about the spoilers for anyone that's not seen it. And because of that weird scorpion's tail or whatever you want to call it curling around on itself it kind of worked artistically but in general that approach to film audience interaction is just not a winner it's not the way to go the video games are interactive in very different ways and they're very different forms of story than television or film and if we want to make film and television adapt to its audience in real time, we've got to think in very different ways to how we think about video games. Yeah, I wonder if um, you can take, you could probably take lessons from live entertainment. You know, let's say a concert, people may clamor for an encore. I mean, what if you have them do the same thing in a movie? If they have the ability to ask for an encore, you know, more material right then and there. You know, you, you charge them for it and stuff, but that'd be pretty cool. Or I don't know or if they want to change the direction of a story. I've given talks before, and when there have been sections where they've gone well, I can see the audience focusing. 
and I kind of follow the line that I'm going down. And then I, I notice, you know, maybe the audience getting a bit more restless. And, it, and, I, and I think at some level in my mind, I'm multitasking during the talk and thinking, how can I recapture? You know, how can I continue to give the information I need to give, but recapture their, their interest? So I think as human beings, um, we do. And when we tell stories to our kids or, or to each other, we, we will interact and adapt depending on the reactions of the observer. It's just obviously a little more of a, it's a little more of a task when you're spending $1 million an episode or, you know, $400 million a, a, a film. It, it becomes a much greater task and a much greater risk. And, and when you've got a mass market of viewers, um, you have to have equipment that is understandable and meaningful and can be distributed to, to the mass market. You know what I realize? I guess they do this a little bit, but um, if you have a series that goes over a period of weeks, do they have trailers for it? And could you use AI to generate things that may not happen, but I don't know, could happen and make that into a trailer that would interest people? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting idea. I mean, some of the stuff you're saying, what's interesting is that, uh, Maybe because this isn't your specialist area, or you're you're like coming up with some quite interesting ideas actually. And the thought of trailers having a dual purpose, not only to make people watch, but to kind of find out what they might want to watch as part of what they're going to watch. I don't see any reason why that couldn't be done. Yeah, you know, you could look at where their eyes. I mean, you can take this to the nth degree, really. If if you know the size of the screen that a person is viewing. Um, or even if you can work out relative eye movements, you can watch it, wh wh who are they focusing on? Because at any point, you know what's showing on this screen. You know the position of all the characters on the screen. So you can even see which characters they're focusing on. And this, this gives you, well, so, you know, so if they're always looking at um, Mrs. X, then maybe you need a bit more of Mrs. X in the next season. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. What, uh, do, you, do you see that? Uh there's going to be a, a movement to replace actors with uh, these like, I guess, half computer versions of them, you know, these like stylized versions of them that's appeared in some movies. See, it's funny because that, this is where, this is where it touches on my own personal preferences. I think in my heart, I know that that's going to be a movement. Um, but I, because of my age and kind of the history of film that I was raised in, I it kind of I miss the old fashioned idea of the physical human actor, and I like I like the idea, but it just feels so inevitable at the moment. We have uh, these you know these poor actors. Well, I guess a lot of them are used to it now, but some of the older actors, I, I know Ian McKellen complained he was almost in tears after the first day of filming on the Hobbit, the first Hobbit film. Yeah. Because he was just on his own with green screens, you know. So we, at the moment, so much of filming is like either an actor on their own or a group of actors who are meant to be, you know, running across a windswept plane while giant spaceships zoom across them and the sky burns with fire. But to them, right. they're just in this aircraft hangar-like construction with green around them and bouncy mats that they have to jump on with elastic tied to their waists. And it's... um. It, it, it really it doesn't take after seeing things like the Princess Leia um, facial animation um, and the Governor Tarkin facial animation. I, I just think it is it is inevitable that we are going to have uh, more and more virtual actors, 
potentially i mean if we want to let our imaginations and i think one of the reasons i haven't let my imagination run free on this is because i so i have favorite actors especially from my kind of teenage formative years and i love the idea of the human actor but if i'm going to let my imagination run free humans could become just placeholders that are then the act that the actual virtual the virtual actor is play is put on them in post-production so you do have humans in films but no one cares who the humans are as long as they're approximately oh, you mean they're just they're like um people in films now become body doubles and then you put on whatever face that uh, people might like to see yeah yeah this is this seems this seems inevitable i i am um, I kind of feel sometimes I'm that Hollywood. I hate the word Hollywood, but I, the film industry, let's say, the international film industry, the, the the big budget international film industry. I kind of think sometimes they don't want to reveal everything that's possible because what they like to do when there's an event film is just reveal the innovations in that film. So it's almost like they don't want to, as a, as a scientist, technologist, and an artist, I will tend to enjoy riffing on the great ideas and the, the possibilities in the film uh, industry. But I think the industry itself, when there's a large amount of money involved, you kind of, you don't want to pre-figure. You just want to release the film that uses the cool VFX, that uses uh, the virtual actor, that you, and you just promote that idea in relation to that film because the film's so bloody expensive and it's so hard getting people to come to the, the cinemas nowadays. So I, I think actually, if you sat down some of the people from um, Industrial Light and Magic, and, and you know, they'd probably a lot of this stuff. They'd be like, "Yeah, yeah, that, that's already happening. Yeah, I, you know, that's easy. Yeah, we've got software that does that." I mean, I, ILM and places like that, Jet, they've created these applications that are, that are reality creators, you know, person creators, and and mapping one person's face onto another. These are all problems that, in one sense, have been solved, and now it's a case of making them more and more realistic. Because I think we all could see that Tarkin and Leia looked a bit uncanny, as they say. The yeah, they didn't look right at all, yeah. It's just going to be a case of iterations to make it better. But look at what happened to the computer industry through iterations. We started right. those iterations however many decades ago, and just through iterative development, we've now got you know a, a billion moon modules in our phones or something. I, I don't know, but the, whatever, the, the increase in computing power has been ridiculous. Um, so if you map that onto the increase in um, reality simulation power, we're going to be going a long way to PS5. In a movie, you could have, I mean, it wouldn't really matter who any of the, you'd save money, let's say, on the extras. You'd save money on any of the characters that are not the major one. And then you could spend all that money just on the major character. I mean, you could even have a movie where, again, you'd, you'd save tons of money on the scenery and all the characters except like maybe the major one or two. And you could even offer the movie where you have um, a couple different people that can play the major characters and the person can choose. If they like a certain actor instead of another one, they have that one be the major character and they swap out the face on top of the body that's moving and doing all the things. And maybe they put voice in too. You know, maybe when, when voice gets to that point where they can you know, make a profile of someone's voice and have them voice a character, I mean, then you really can make movies in the way people might want them. They might, they might not like this person as the main, they may like someone else you know, that they favor, let's say. Yeah, there's, we're now touching on, I mean, yeah, they, they can profile people's voices. So you can kind of, uh, 
the software even I can get for my laptop that can you can record a certain amount of a voice and then you can get it to say new words. What if there was a movie that people really liked the story and people in the US wanted certain actors and then people in the UK wanted popular UK actors and people in India would want to watch it, but they want popular Indian characters to do the, the main role. Then the same story can serve a whole bunch of different countries and cultures and people can get it in the way they want it. And they'll feel like it's their their story, their people. Yeah, that certainly is. I mean, I, I've, I don't think I've ever gone into the character, the virtual actor discussion as deeply as I'm going into it with you. Um, for the reasons I said earlier. But uh, there are elements against it. I mean, one of the elements against it is people, we we like stars. And what I mean by that, we, we you know, we're kind of evolved from this, this idea of this ape-like or, you know, the simplest societies looking at our evolutionary cousins, you had, you had the animals that are higher in the hierarchy and all the other animals want to be physically near to them. And in a, in a sense, we've recreated that in very large societies using, because you can't all see the king ape. We can't all go up and touch the king ape's arm in a large modern society. We can, however, yeah. see, them, see them on TV. We can hear them interviewed. We can learn all about them. We can see them at work. We can watch them on large screens. So in a sense, there is a kind of tipping point where you're thinking, would we rather see a human? You know, would we rather see the, the one of the these people that we worship, the stars, if you like, the modern prophets, whatever you want to call them. Maybe that's something that will hold us back from going fully virtual. Or, you know, maybe we'd love the idea of virtual stars we can chat with. You know, we can chat yeah. with the actual star if, if they're virtual. Yeah, I've seen some of that where they'll create like an avatar and they'll, uh, you know, they'll interact with the avatar and it's programmed to be just like the actor, supposedly. And, you know, yeah. I, I don't know got- how well that'll go over, but I guess... Yeah. You know, if you let you sell, if you suspend your disbelief, I guess it could be pretty powerful. Well, vision is everything. We are totally swept up by vision. It takes a very a great deal of mental and training to not be utterly swamped by powerful visual imagery. So, so you know, if you can trick people, if you can make people experience vision uh, in a sufficiently kind of immersive 3D way, they that it's very, even though the conscious minds might say this isn't real or this person isn't real, if there are enough cues that tap into the subconscious, we almost don't have a choice but to be affected by it. Mm, yeah, that's true. Huh. Well, lots of possibilities. Um, I guess we're, we're kind of at the end of time. What, so what's the best way for people to find out more about the things you're talking about, to see your work, you know, to experience films that have some of these these innovations in them? Where can they go? If they, my, my, I have a website, alexiskirk.com. It's A-L-E-X-I-S-K-I-R-K-E.com. If you search on medium.com for interactive movies, there's an article I wrote that has information about the background for a lot of interactive movies, whether they be, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to press a button or you don't have to press a button. I mean, those are the two that, that spring to mind. A simple Google search on, uh, AI and storytelling can be quite, (laughs) will will bring you links towards uh, to a number of short films whose scripts have been kind of developed by AIs or neural networks and so forth. So those are some of the most obvious ways to look at it. Okay. Yeah, well, very good. Alexis, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to talk about it and dig, dig a bit deeper on some of this stuff.
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.